Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Um, every week for the last few weeks, we have been reciting the Shema and the ironic blessing. Um, you may begin to feel like it's a bit repetitious, but if you've been going to refuge long enough, repetition's one of our things, one of the things that we lean upon. <clears throat> so, I'm not making any excuses about it. I don't apologize. This is great stuff. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah, New Year, the uh, Yom Teruah, the day of blowing. And it is a day where they will blow the shofar, the ram's horn. Um, and the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah are special ram's horns. They're coated, plated in silver. In, uh, in the days of old, the uh, temple tax would gather silver from those who were levied the tax. And they would melt down this silver and plate these ram's horns that were to be blown on Rosh Hashanah. And they would inscribe and etch into that silver the Shema. So, as we're talking about this, these are, this is a special time where the Shema and the Shofar come together. And as we, as we recite this, just keep that in your mind. So let's go ahead. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Baruch Shem Kavod, Makotol Leolam Vayed. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha, v'chol Levavcha, Avechol Navshecha, Uvechol Meodecha. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. Veahavta Larecha Kamocha. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Mickey Mantle would hit, turn around and hit left handed, left -handed off of his grandpa. And he shares this story. He said, uh, both would toss tennis balls uh, at me in our front yard as hard as they could. And I'd bat right-handed against dad, switch to left-handed against grandpa. A grounder or a pop-up was an out. A drive off the side of the house was a double. Off the roof was a triple. Uh, and it was a homer when I hit one over the house or somebody's window. <laughs> and he said, I was probably the only kid who made his old man proud when he would break a window. Now, eventually, he was drafted by the Yankees and given the number six, but he absolutely crushed himself with pressure. He wanted to live up to all the things that his dad and his grandpa had taught him, and he felt just an overwhelming weight of that. Um, and the pinnacle of his first year was striking out five times in a doubleheader against Boston, where he went to his manager, Casey Stengel, and said in tears, 
you need to put somebody in my place who can actually play baseball. And it wasn't too long after that, he was sent down to Kansas City in the AAA affiliate, and he would talk about having bruises on his fingers from punching the, punching the concrete posts in the, uh, in the dugout, and he would actually almost break his toes kicking the uh, water cooler every time he messed up. And his dad said to him, his dad who was very persistent, but, but according to Mickey, very, very patient. And he would say, you need to take your anger out on the bat and not on your body. Let your bat do that. And so he was very frustrated. He called his dad and he said, I guess I don't belong in the big leagues. Maybe I was just meant to be a minor league player. And he was on the verge of quitting. And his dad uh, very patiently said, son, listen, things get hard. And you're going to have to learn how to handle hard things and how to deal with that. So if this is all you got, maybe you're right. Maybe you don't belong in baseball. Mickey took some time off, dug in a little bit, said he had some quiet contemplation and prayer, and eventually got his game back together, was called back up to the Yankees, where in the meantime, their third baseman, Bobby Brown, had started wearing the number six. And so the next number in line for Mickey Mantle was number seven. And... Number seven in Yankees lore goes down in history, and George Costanza never did get that kid. So we never got to use the name, and the rest, as they say, is history. Seven, the number seven is a big deal in the Yankees organization, and the number seven is a big deal in Scripture. Lots of stuff in Scripture comes with the number seven. Um, in Leviticus 23, God commands seven feasts or seven holy convocations. The foundational piece of all these convocations that God does is a day of rest and to cease from normal labor uh, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. Um, today, we're going to look at the head of the year or the beginning of the year or the new year, uh, which is Rosh Hashanah, which is called originally the Feast of Trumpets. And it takes place in the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month of the year, of the Hebrew calendar. And next year, we'll look at just how many more sevens are at play uh, in, in that God uses. The number seven is a number of completeness in Scripture or, or perfection. Um, and so it's on this day, the first day of the seventh month, uh, that Leviticus gives a very brief description of this day that it is to be a memorial ceasing from labor, but it's also intrinsically tied to the holiest day of the year, which we'll talk about next, uh, next week, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And it begins the high holy days of the year, the 10 days. Um, so it, you, originally, all we have really in Scripture is this Feast of Trumpets, but it's tied to a little bit more. What we learn through the Talmud uh, and what had become more of the tradition um, that's not explicitly mentioned in, uh, in Scripture, was that this day uh, was the celebration of the new year. And so you may ask, why would you celebrate the new year on the seventh month? And that's a great question. Um, and the Hebrew calendar has 12 months, but the Hebrew calendar is based on a lunar cycle, not the so uh, solar cycle. And the lunar cycle is actually 11 days shorter. And so every few years the Hebrew calendar has 13 months. Uh, this is all, this, it, this is really fascinating. Just like when talking to my friend, 
for their 24-hour Sabbath, they celebrate 25 hours just in case. And um, so the Hebrew scriptures actually have uh, 12 months most years and 13 months other years. And they, like us, we have different months that begin new things, right? Uh, corporations will have the beginning of a fiscal year. And so as part of your corporation, you will celebrate the new year or a new beginning at certain times of the year. Um, political cycles have uh, new beginnings and new years when there are uh, when the votes actually take place or when people actually take office. And the Hebrew calendar had that as well. The calendar that they used for the reigns of kings and when kings began their rule. So there are political cycles. And then this one, um, the Hebrew calendar is very old and the seventh month is said to go back all the way to creation. That this is actually the celebration of, of the earth's birthday. And so the seventh month, Tishri, is actually a new beginning from a spiritual sense. Uh, and so, the seventh month celebrates the new beginning, the birth of God's creation, uh, the earth's birthday. And for the God-fearer, uh, this is not a time of fiscal renewal. This is not a time of political renewal. It is a time of spiritual renewal. Um, and much like all the other holy uh, days, God consecrates his people to take a day of remembrance, to remember his creation, to cease from ordinary labor, to remember his gift of Sabbath, and to bring a food offering. And then as we're going we're gonna to attempt to do, we're going to do, we're going to do later, uh, at the very end, we're going to blow the shofar and, um, and read the, read, uh, the de declaration over the people. Um, and these are high holy days. They often occur in September or October. Uh, the uh, fall time frame, which is also culminates with the final harvest. So, we will celebrate the high holy of the holy days next week with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, and we'll look at... Uh, so what's difficult about this is there's not necessarily a direct correlation of this with uh, New Testament, and we don't have a whole lot of what happens uh, on this day in Scripture. But what we do have is a new beginning, which is a practice that followers of Jesus um, ought to participate in very often. Um, so this is, the, this is a time of preparation. It's also a time of self-examination for repentance and then a prayer for blessing. And we'll have two items that we will give to you today. Uh, we will have a rock and an apple and, and honey. So three items, the apple and the honey go together. Uh, but we'll let you, I'll let you know more about that later when we close. Um, so Rosh Hashanah, it's a celebration of the new year, not totally unlike what we do in our new year, depending on how you celebrate uh, your new year. But it is a time of reflection, it's a time of recommitment, and it's also a time of prayer asking for God's blessing. Um, and uh, what we often say at the conclusion, we haven't been doing it during this series, but often what we say at the conclusion, we ask people to take a posture of receptivity at the conclusion of our service and then read a blessing over you. And what we talk about often is the blessing of God is actually his presence. 
Uh, it is his presence being with us. It's us being aware that he is with his people. He will never leave nor forsake his people. It's not necessarily a blessing of material wealth or a blessing of life of ease. It is much, much better. It is the blessing of his presence. And what we're going to see, or what I hope to see today as we really examine what, what is repentance, uh, that intrinsic within repentance is to see and know and feel and experience the presence of God. So, um, what goes with the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, all during the month of Elul, which is uh, for 40 days, is a time of deep preparation and examination of our souls. A time of repentance, a time of looking back over the past year. Uh, and then uh, there are days of restitution, of going to make right whatever relationship, either with others or with God himself, Make right in preparation for the day of a Some season of preparation is 40 days. God institutes in the Sabbath every week, there is, a, there is a lot that goes in to prepare for resting. And so there's a number of hours that goes in to preparing for the Sabbath meal and to have a full 10 days of, uh, of atonement, um, there are 40 days of preparation, self-examination during the month of Elul. So what I want to do this morning, and this is really kind of the, the application, and, and this is where we're going to uh, take our time to actually finish this, is what I want to do is I want to, I want to take a time to look at our understanding of what repentance means. And then I want to give you an exercise to do this week. Um, in our world, in our culture, there is a whole lot of, uh, we tend to boil down and make our the person we disagree with, we tend to make the worst argument for their case and the best argument for our case. We're big into mic drop statements without actually examining things. And there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, about repentance. And a lot of times what I've seen some, summed up um, is, uh, you know, so basically you want me to feel bad about myself and then uh, this is how I know God loves me if I feel bad enough and uh, this is some kind of form of toxic, you know, whatever. And the goal of Christianity is to feel bad about it. And then to have a preacher stand up and say, you need to share this with other people. So then you're like, okay, so I would need to feel really bad about myself all the time and then go tell other people that they should come and feel bad with me. And there's the message of Christianity. Repentance is not feeling bad about yourself. Uh, we need to understand that. Um, as I said before, the time, uh, uh, repentance and then actually experiencing the presence of Jesus goes together so much. And I wanna take some time to unpack what does repentance actually look like and what does it not look like? Uh, Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door, to the Wittenberg door, he, he said, uh, his, his opening statement, that all of life is repentance. Now, let me tell you quickly, all right? Martin Luther, in his old age, he dealt with some health issues and he made a lot of derogatory statements about the Jewish people. And so, if you are in a conversation with someone who is Jewish and you bring up the name Martin Luther, there is still a lot of trauma involved in all of Western European Christianity, but especially with Martin Luther, and then it carries over to a lot of anti-Semitic thoughts in our current day. So, you can either learn this from me, or you can learn it like me, and bring up Martin Luther in a conversation, and have somebody very lovingly, graci graciously tell you, that's not a good name in our book. And I went, noted. So, now, 
That said, Martin Luther did give some really good thoughts on repentance when he talked about how all of life, uh, all of life is, repentant, uh, is repentance. And I, I agree with that, but I also think we need to understand what repentance means. Um, <clears throat> repentance, again, is not just walking around feeling bad. And when we say all of life is repentance, it's not just walking around feeling bad of how bad you are, of how messed up you are, of how much you have failed. It's not that. Uh, religious repentance, uh, there's, there's another aspect that, that, religi- uh, that repentance isn't. In religious repentance, uh, we are sorry when we get caught for stuff. That is also not repentance. It's, we're sorry not because we actually hurt somebody or not because we have fractured our relationship with God, uh, but because we got caught doing it. We have a joke in our house uh, with our kids um, when they get caught doing something and, and uh, kind of they can treat it like everything's like a bear attack, right? Just play dead until they go away. Uh, and that's where, and I know none of you have kids like this. Um, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. Is that enough? Are they gone? Can I go? Can I go back to doing the thing that I was doing that I wasn't supposed to do? Have I said it enough? Nobody, right? We don't do that. Um, uh, this is not repentance. What this is, is, I mean, it, it is kind of playing dead. It, it is like, it, it is a way to avoid punishment. It's a way to avoid consequences. Being sorry and sorrowful can be a part of repentance, especially when we see um, that we have hurt somebody, even ourselves. But it also can be a part of manipulation, uh, repentance, and I do want to say this, repentance is not a denial of justice. You can be forgiven, as we said uh, I don't know, several months ago, right? Um, uh, baptism may have set you straight with the Lord, but the state of Mississippi is a little more hard-nosed, right? It does not, it does not undo justice. If you ha- that's, uh, oh, brother, where art thou, if you haven't seen that. that um, it doesn't undo justice. Being forgiven doesn't mean that if there are earthly consequences or restitution to pay, that that means you're off the hook and you don't have to do that. Uh, Somebody has to pay for the windows that Mickey Mantle broke, right? It's great. Congratulations, it's a hard-hit ball, but the neighbors would like their windows repaired. So it doesn't undo justice. Sometimes we can treat repentance itself as atoning for our sin. And I want to tell you, um, this is like to be freed from this. It's a, weird way of, it's, a, it's a weird way of self-righteousness, but it basically says if I feel bad enough, if I heap enough shame on me, if I just beat myself up enough, then I can merit forgiveness. Um, this is also a way of avoiding Jesus as Savior. This is a way of avoiding our need, our deep need for him. Repentance is not just heaping shame upon shame upon shame and feeling horrible. You don't have to self-atone. That's the beauty of the gospel. And here's the thing. These forms of false repentance, which I think, if we're honest, a lot of us do these, or I do. These forms of false repentance, here's the biggest thing. You're right. That w- those are terrible. And if you think this is the goal of the Christian life, is, are these things, that would be awful. It does not bring reconciliation. It does not bring the joy of God's presence. What it brings is bitterness and resentment. 
And if this is what we have been taught of what repentance is, or if we haven't been explained fully what it is, uh, then this is what we're left to. Uh, and it will not bring the joy of reconciliation. It will just cause us to do endless cycles, and then that will probably produce coping mechanisms to deal with these cycles, and then we get addicted to those coping mechanisms, which produce additional shame, where we go, okay, now I'm doing these to avoid dealing with these, and it's a really fun cycle. It's not a fun cycle. That was sarcasm. It's horrible. So what is repentance? Um, Several years ago, uh, Tim Keller uh, wrote an article uh, on, actually, about George Whitfield, and he had a prayerful order for regular repentance. And it said that he would often do this inventory at night. And this is the, this is the, uh, the prayer that he wrote. He said, God, give me a deep humility and a burning love, a well-guided zeal and a single eye, and then let men and devils do their worst. So, we're going we're gonna to walk through, uh, I think Keller has a beautiful picture of walking through these. First, deep humility versus pride. Scripture talks over and over again. If you're taking notes, this is a good time. We're, I think we're going to put this article, we'll, we'll make sure that this article is available on the app. Um, deep humility versus pride. Scripture goes over and over again how God resists the, prou- the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the questions he asks... Have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? Then here is a way to repent. Consider the free grace of Jesus until I sense a decreasing disdain for others, since I am a sinner too, decreasing pain over criticism, since I can't value human approval over God's love, which I often do, And in light of the grace of Jesus, I can let go of the need to keep up a good image. It's too great of a burden, and it's unnecessary. And so consider God's free grace in Jesus until I experience grateful and restful joy. Next, he says, burning love versus indifference. I don't know if anybody else struggles with this, but it's way easy to marginalize people or events and just like, go numb to them and take on a posture of indifference. And so the questions that he asks, have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Am I justifying myself by caricaturing, in my mind, someone else? Have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed and indifferent and inattentive to people? Then here is a way to repent. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is no coldness or unkindness where we think of the sacrificial love that Christ has shown me, where there's no impatience to think of God's patience with me and no indifference where we actually care deeply, not less. Consider this grace until I show warmth and affection that God was infinitely patient and attentive to me because of his grace. And then he talks about having wise courage instead of anxiety. And this one I, I don't, I, uh. Have I avoided people or tasks that I know I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? Have I failed to be circumspect? Or have I been rash and impulsive? Then here is a way to repent. Consider the free grace of Jesus 
until there's no cowardly avoidance of hard things. Christ faced evil for me. He went to the hardest of places. That there's no anxious or rash behavior since death, Christ's death and resurrection proves over and over God's care and presence over me. It takes a measure of pride to be anxious. I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go, and so I can consider the free grace of Jesus until I experience a calm, thoughtful, and strategic boldness to approach a task or a person. And then finally, he talks about godly motivation, a single eye. Am I doing what I'm doing for God's glory and for the good of others, or am I being driven by fear? Or am I being driven by the need for approval? Or am I being driven by love, my love of comfort and ease? Or my need to control things? Or my hunger for acclaim and power? Or the fear of man? Do I look at others with envy? Am I giving in to even the first motivations or uh, the first motions of lust or gluttony or escape? Am I spending my time on urgent things rather than important things? because of these inordinate desires. Repent then like this. How does Jesus provide for me what I am looking for in these other things? And count the ways that he is better. And then he has a prayer that he finishes with. Lord Jesus, make me happy enough in you to avoid sin, wise enough in you to avoid danger, that I may always do what is right in your sight. In your name I pray, amen. Repentance is not just a, a, it's not a way for us to simply feel bad, and then if you feel bad enough, Jesus will love you and grant your forgiveness. In fact, what repentance does, it reminds our hearts and our minds that we are loved by God because of Christ's work on our behalf, that that is what is acceptable, not how bad we feel. And so if we do repentance as a sort of transactional relationship with God, I do these things and I feel this bad so then you'll forgive me, it will result in bitterness, it will result in never doing good enough, and it won't result in the presence of knowing God's love for you. But genuine repentance, you can't do it absent of relationship. It requires your presence and God's presence. And so we, when we repent in the presence of God, we can ask the question, where, God, have I forfeited your goodness and sitting in your presence and trusting you and delighting in you because I've been so caught up in either my past uh, that I can't do anything about or my future that, I'm, that I can't control? And then, as part of that, as part of Rosh Hashanah, the turning, not only the looking at our life over the past year, but also the asking for more of this. God, tomorrow, let me sit in your presence again. The things that trip me up today, may I be aware of these all the more for tomorrow. Um, so I want to give you, Keller's article gives a, a kind of a great idea of the posture of our heart, but I want to give you an exercise that I found very, very helpful uh, and, and even a, a, an image in your mind that I found very helpful. It is something that you can do as part of an annual celebration. It does take time. It will take time and presence. 
Uh, it will take a measure of like sitting down and going through this uh, and self-examination. But um, even in just reading this uh, and preparing for Rosh Hashanah, I realized how long it had been since I've done this exercise. And when I did it, it was glorious. It was beautiful. So here, here is the exercise. And again, we'll put, this, uh, we'll put this on the app as well. Take a couple sheets of paper and write down the Ten Commandments. Give space between each one. You can find those in Exodus 20 or you can find those in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Write down each commandment and then leave a little bit of space to, to, um, to journal, to write down some of your thoughts, some of the things that uh, come to mind. And for each of the commandments, allow them to be a guide for you, to walk through areas of your life maybe you don't consider on a regular basis. And imagine that Jesus is walking with you through the corridors of your mind and your heart, what you love, what you think about, what you dwell on. And when you see something that is good, that you both take time to rejoice in that and appreciate God's presence there and what he has done. And then when you see some of the dark places, some of the sins, that you name that. Don't let it sit there undefined and uh, just sit there uh, because when things are undefined, that's when they own us. But name it. God, this is what I've done. This is what I've been guilty of. This is what I have actively pursued or willfully neglected or even just unaware. And acknowledge that, and you can write it down. You can write down a name. You can write down a, 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 a temptation. You can write down an addiction, whatever it might be. And then I, what, I want you to, what I want you to feel and hear is I want you to feel Jesus putting his hand on your shoulder and saying to you, would you like me to take that from you? I'll gladly take it. And that repentance is turning and saying, yes, please. And then hearing Jesus say, I love you. This is gone. Some of these dark places may require an action. It may require a measure of reconciliation with a friend or an apology. It may require granting forgiveness. Uh, it may require a restitution of something that has been broken. And then asking for or granting forgiveness, which I want to hit this really quick again. This is not the absence of justice. Sometimes there are greater things at work here. And I will tell you, if this, is, if this gets into the realm, because I want to qualify this, if, if some of these areas get into the realm of like legal issues, I would encourage you to talk with a trusted friend about that and determine a wise course of action. This is not saying you just need to forgive. Or, uh, I'm forgiven, I'm, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm Forgiven for holding up that piggly wiggly, uh, right? Um, talk with a trusted friend. Um, but here's the thing. In these greater issues, especially in areas where you might have been hurt, where you would have been the victim, regardless of, whether, regardless of how much of it is your fault, oftentimes we think, I see things all the time of situations that just seem so black and white, and I'm like, I've never had... A, just a very black and white issue in my life. Everything is, is complex. But if there's an area where it's not your fault, if there's an area that you have been wronged, um, I want to encourage you to do the hard work of forgiveness there. Or else you will be consumed. Here again, this is not forfeiting justice, but this is doing the hard work of forgiveness 
Um, we, we don't live in a day where we want, we live in a day of vengeance more often than not, not forgiveness. If somebody else breaks your arm, if they trip you and push you down and intentionally break your arm, do they deserve to be punished for that? Absolutely, right? Do they deserve a measure of justice for that? Absolutely. But hear me, no amount of punishment that they face will heal your arm. You have to do that. Well, that's not fair. It may not be. But no amount of punishment that they face will heal your arm. You have to deal with that. That's why the hard work of forgiveness is critical. And so as you walk through the Ten Commandments, in this, in this, this would come in the time of preparation for the Days of Atonement, as you would walk through and do this and feel the grace and the presence of Jesus that is there, it has to be there. Write down under each of the commandments, not only your sin, but where you feel the grace and presence of Jesus. And then, uh, and, and notice and write down what Christ has offered you, what he has given you in his grace and forgiveness. And then after you've finished, I totally do the youth group thing, right? Take that piece of paper, wad it up, and, and burn it, and rejoice in God's goodness. Or we're going to hand you, we're going to give you rocks today, uh, which are not to throw at the people who may have hurt you. Um, <laughs> I think I just gave bad ideas. I'm sorry. But you can take the rock. This is what uh, the, uh, a Hebrew t tradition called tashlik uh, stems from Micah 7.19, that one day God will turn again and have mercy on us. He will put away our iniquities and he will cast all, all our sins to the bottom of the sea. And so if you do, go through the hard work and do the hard work of, of repentance and forgiveness, experiencing the presence of God, take that rock and go to a pond, or go to a lake, or go to the river, and throw it in. And I would suggest doing this in community. I would, I'd, I'd suggest doing the Ten Commandments personally, but then doing this together in community with others, and rejoicing over Christ's forgiveness, and throw it as far as from the east is from the west. Knowing that in Christ, God has taken our sin, and cast it into the bottom of the sea, and he remembers our sin no more. And what, what comes with repentance? We snuck this in there. This is the prayer of blessing. What comes with repentance when you're walking through the corridors of your mind or your heart and you see that, that Jesus is with you the whole time? That his presence is there. Intrinsic in repentance is not, again, it's not this transactional relationship where you come before God and you're like, all right, I messed up again um, here and I'm going to try to do better this time. It is actually walking hand in hand with God, his arm around you, walking through and allowing him to say, I can take this from you. <clears throat> and for that... With repentance comes the sweetness of God's presence, his grace and forgiveness, and the desire to walk in his presence all the more, where we don't pine after the smaller things, but we can actually walk in, his, in this identity that we have in Christ. And so for that, we have apples 
to dip into honey. This is a Jewish custom. It's a dessert. Uh, one of the things that I love, and I can't remember of them, but, but also Rosh Hashanah tends to be a time of dad jokes. Um, and I wish I could remember what the dad jokes were. I can't. Um, but dads, like, when this celebration, man, eat it up. Um, so you would take the apple, cut it up, dip it into honey, a dessert uh, that is sweet as a prayer for God's sweet presence and blessing in the year to come. And so after you endure the hard work of self-examination and repentance, you would cut the apple and dip it into the honey and enjoy and invite the sweetness of God's presence. And again, always better to enjoy these in community. Uh, the part that I forgot to, to bring up, Elul, which is the month of, uh, which is the sixth month of the year, which is the day of preparation for the day of atonement, uh, it is often thought, Matthew Ford tells us uh, that this is the time that Jesus was in the desert facing temptation. This is the time that he spent preparing for the Day of Atonement, where he spent 40 days fasting, uh, that time of self-evaluation. So, here again, um, I feel like I need to give a summary. The summary of Rosh Hashanah, it's the celebration of the Earth's birthday, the celebration of God's creation. It is a time every year for a spiritual renewal. It is a checkup. It's the oil change. It's the time where you take your life, not just the daily rhythms, but the high holy days to take a specific amount of time to prepare your heart, prepare your mind, and really begin to evaluate, where have I put my value and worth? Where have I seen my grace and forgiveness? Who do I actually look for to feel like I am important? Where is my hope? What do I trust in? Take a time of self-reflection and then prepare your mind and heart. Uh, and the beauty of that, which we'll look at next week, is that the atonement has been made. But it's not absent of repentance. Rejoice anew. Allow God's presence, allow Jesus walking with you to seep into every part of your life, every motive, every relationship, every area of blindness. Um, and let, it, let, it, let repentance cease to be this idea of just feeling bad and being a transactional relationship. And let the idea of repentance, especially all of life being repentance, be the idea of walking daily with Jesus in his grace and mercy and rejoice in his presence. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've put, you've put these things in place. And our, our righteousness is not based on how well or how accurately we celebrate these, um, but nor should we just take this and just cast it aside and say, that's not ours, that's a whole other religion. This is, these are ways and gifts that you designed and put in and amongst your people because we are so quick to forget the first thing I do when I sin or I neglect or I say something bad or I live in a fear of what somebody else is going to think about me, the first thing I do is not go, Christ have mercy and thank you for your love and mercy. The first thing I do is I try to fix it. And so when you give us these gifts of repentance, it is a, it is a beautiful way of you saying to our hearts, stop. I've done that. You trying to fix is not going to get what you think it's going to get. Trust me. Turn to me. Let your kingdom go. Walk in mine. 
This is a gift. And I pray that we would see that and experience that um, in the hard work of repentance and in the joyful, sweet promise of your presence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.